As we begin today, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Almighty God, you pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on all who desire it. Deliver us from cold hearts and wandering thoughts, that with steady minds and burning zeal we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. The peace of Christ be with you. As we turn our hearts to worship, our help is in the name of the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God, our creator, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every good gift belongs to us, and Christ belongs to God. Praise God, in whom we live and move and have our being. Praise the Lord. Come. Let us worship the Lord. All the prophets testify about Christ that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Therefore, in Christ, we stand forgiven. Thanks be to God. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so, let us live. As we come to the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lift up your hearts. Let us lift them to the Lord our God. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 2 and 9 through 18. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregations of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor, and you shall not steal. And you shall not keep from yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render any unjust judgment, and you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor. And ye, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second lesson comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, where the author of Matthew, Matthew speaks of the love of neighbor, exhorted of us by Christ. Hear now the word of God. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye 
and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The good news is quite revolutionary if you take it at face value. When Jesus speaks words like he does in this Matthew text, it rattles a lot of cages, and it's intended to do so. Imagine taking seriously the... uh, commandment, if you will, to never, never hate your enemy. To always borrow to someone in need. Doesn't say anywhere in there, borrow after you check their credit score and their references. I don't see that in the footnotes anywhere. Does anyone have that in their translation? You see how difficult it is, this gospel thing? It's very radical. It cuts to the core. It is, in many ways, the same kind of overturning of the way we see things that the gospel is very good at doing. We call this in theology worldview. The way people understand or see the world in which they live. And as people who have lived in and now find ourselves in a postmodern world, we have two different worldviews that clash constantly in our worlds and in our daily lives. There is the scientific worldview that says that everything that can be proven is real. Everything that can be demonstrated is real. Okay? That there is no sense of anything beyond the natural. There is no supernatural, if you will. And so, for years, theology has striven to live with that kind of worldview. So we had during the 1960s and 70s and 80s what we call the Jesus Project. 
scholars from around the world got together and took apart all of the Gospels and figured out what the historical Jesus must have said and done and been. And when they were done, you could have fit whatever Jesus was or said or did in probably an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. That was it. Everything else was fluff. Fluff that was added by the church in its own interpretation. Stuff that was, fluff that was added by the theologians and the, the, the monks and the, the religious folks of the Middle, middle Ages. Da, 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 on and on. It was all fluff, except for these key core statements. And of course, one of those is, you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, what the two lessons both emphasize today is that there is something more than that. There is something more to this way of seeing the world than we are willing to admit. And because the scriptures were written and produced prior to the modern age, it makes more sense to understand where these people are coming from than where we are today. In the Old Testament passage in Leviticus, it is very clear that God is saying to Israel, you will always provide for the less fortunate. I am holy. And in the mind of the ancients, holiness was complete separateness. It was the idea of something that was set apart. It was our sense today, if you will, of sacred. When something is sacred, it is set apart for a holy purpose. When God said to Israel, I am holy and you will be holy, what is God saying to Israel? In their minds, there was no way they could do that. Because the concept of God in the worldview of the Old Testament was that God was the the basis for everything that is. If you read through the Psalms, what is said over and over again? The stars sing the glory of God. The heavens are his throne. All of those metaphors are ways of saying that this God that we look at, that this God that we hear, that this God that we obey in the scriptures is a God that we can't put our hands on. We can't get our minds wrapped around this God. And that, you see, is why the New Testament becomes this pivotal moment in the history of the universe where God intervenes in our lives through the incarnation of Jesus Christ and says, this is my final word. There's two different ways of seeing the world. One that says there is always more than what we see or experience. Even modern physics demonstrates that two forces outside of time and space affect the way our space-time reality holds together. Houston Smith quotes these two physicists in saying that Basically, 
The electromagnetic forces of the universe are something completely outside of our universe that we have no way of proving exists, but have to be there in order to hold the time and space continuum in place. So even modern physicists are saying there's got to be something more than what we can prove, than what we can see, than what we can get evidence of, because nothing else makes sense. So, how do we understand this holy God? How many of you have ever been angry at God because of something that got screwed up in your life? Come on, be honest. Yeah. Now, how many of you have ever gotten angry at some thing rather than someone? Yeah? Okay. This is interesting. Because we as Christians tend to understand and see God as this person who lives out there in the beyond and kind of plays with us and once in a while kind of sticks his finger into the space-time continuum and kind of heals somebody of cancer or gets somebody off the hook over here. Or, and our idea of God is that God is somewhere outside of our daily routine. That somehow God exists out there. Even with the fact that Jesus Christ came and lived among us, we have a really difficult time believing that God could be with us in the bathtub or driving with us in the car. It doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? That kind of God is not enough. Perhaps too much. We have this understanding of God as a being. A being who somehow functions within the system that has been created. When in fact, God is not a being. God is being. It is Paul the Apostle who says in Colossians that nothing that exists exists without the Christ. That there is no such thing as being or existence without God. And that Christ is the evidence of that. All reality and all of the more that kind of gives our reality significance and purpose and meaning depends upon, is based upon, and is held together by God who is absolutely other, who is absolutely outside of who we are, and yet at the same time is present in and through us all the time. When you say every Communion Sunday, together as a congregation with me, the Ten Commandments. What are the first couple commandments telling you not to do? What do they say? I am the Lord your God, I brought you out of Egypt, thou shalt not... Huh? 
You shall not bow down to any other god. You shall not have what? Any graven, graven images or false gods. Okay. Is it possible that as we read those words as a postmodern, we have to understand that when the Hebrew heard those, wo- heard those words, it was not just a matter of not having statues in the chancel to, to worship or not having icons on the wall and the ceilings to see. But rather, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall have no graven images, that includes the idea or the concept of God as another person. When we make God to be like we are, we are making God in whose image? Ours. God will not allow you or I to do that. And that, you see, is part of what is happening in the church today. 25 to 40 years of theological dialogue in our seminaries has finally hit the streets in postmodern America. And we are finally beginning to say, you know what? For all the years that we grew up in Sunday school and church being told that God was this old guy sitting in a rocker in heaven working everything out so that it would all come out to God's glory and your good is not the way it is. God is constantly active in our life and in our world. That is the message that Jesus Christ brought to us. And that is why every day, in every moment, in every action, in every word, we are what Christ called Makarios, blessed witnesses. We are the last word. We are the body of Christ. God is... Being, And what are the consequences of that? What happens when that, that false idea of God explodes and disappears? What are we left with? Well, how many of you who are 50 or less remember going to college and having someone say that all truth is God's truth? Any of you? During the 1970s and 80s, in every Christian college across America, that word, that sentence, was plastered under every lecture, under every book, on every newsletter. All truth is God's truth. At at Calvin College, we believe all truth is God's truth. At Hope College, we believe all truth is God's What does that mean, all truth is God's truth? It was a way for the intellectual community to begin to find its path into this understanding of God. To say that if there was truth in science, that was God in science. If there was truth in literature, God was in that. If there was truth in philosophy, God was in that. And if there was truth in religion, God was in that, obviously. If God is the ground of all being, 
If God's attributes are the ground of all attributes, if everything that we understand as good, holy, healthy, wholesome, righteous, if all of those adjectives are defined by God, God's self, then it gives us pause to say, how do we understand God's activity in all the affairs of mankind. You see, it was Calvin who so radically said during the Reformation, no, God is not just a player in the game of reality. God is sovereign over the reality. And that message rattled the cages of the medieval world because nobody had any right to tell a monarch, especially another monarch, What to do? And so Calvin is rattling even the very foundations of the society saying, only God has the right to turn the tables upside down. Only God has a right or the ability to turn topsy-turvy what you assume to be true. And that sometimes is painful. That sometimes puts us in pickles. It sometimes causes us tears and sorrow and grief. But sometimes it causes us great joy. And through that all, what is the message we are left with? What does Jesus say? When he leaves us, he says, I will send you a psychiatrist to help you work it out. No. I will send you a a philosophical system that will help you to argue your way out of your pain. What does he leave us with at Pentecost and the Ascension? The Comforter. The one who come alongside. The Parakletos. The Holy Spirit. That is you see the way we experience God. That is the way we find all that we need to sustain us, to comfort us, to guide us, to uphold us, to give us a sense of purpose. And you see, that triune work is a divine work, and it's a mystery, and that's why we worship. It was Paul preaching at the Areopagus in Athens who said to the Greeks and the Hellenists, it is in him, in the Christ, that we live and move and have our being. Paul got it. Paul understood. If we can, It means a whole new way of understanding our role in the world. Let's pray. Father, we are not all too crazy about the idea of being radicals or revolutionaries. We're not even too crazy about protesters. 
And so we struggle, Lord, with knowing how to be witnesses to this kind of truth. How to be witnesses to this kind of reality. And so we ask your grace, your wisdom, your courage to carry this reality, this way of seeing, this way of being in the world to the lengths and breadths of all that we are and do to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.